encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 30. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. Let me read for us this morning these verses. Then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let me pray. Lord, as we look to your word now, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your word that we would be hearers of it and also doers of it, and that our hearts would be more in awe of Jesus from this passage of Scripture. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm guessing um, if you've lived long enough, there's been a time in your life, probably maybe more than once, where you've been falsely accused by someone, whether it was a friend or, or someone who, who knew you to a certain degree, or maybe it was someone gossiping about you and they were, they were spreading lies about you. They were falsely making accusations about you. Kids, you might have already experienced this at school where, where there just might be some kids who have, who have for some reason decided to, to either accuse you of something falsely or they spread rumors about you that just weren't true and were unfair. And I, and I can imagine how much you were hurt by that. See, to be falsely accused is, is wrong, and it's, it's painful. All of us can testify to that. Our, our natural indication when we are falsely accused is to defend ourselves, is to vindicate ourselves, to prove that person wrong, to prove the gossip wrong. See, being falsely accused can ruin our reputation. It can tarnish our reputation. I, I think, for example, we see this very clearly today when it comes to the internet and social media. Whole people's careers and, and lives have been utterly destroyed because people have falsely accused other people over the internet. Jesus was familiar with such a thing. As we looked at last week, he, he was a polarizing figure. Everyone had an opinion about him. Some saw him as a miracle worker. Some saw him as the Messiah. Some saw him as merely a prophet or a teacher. There were many opinions regarding Jesus. 
In this morning's passage, there are two opinions or two accusations that are made about Jesus. And they're not really pleasant accusations. Now we saw in verses 7 and 19 that the crowds were pressing around Jesus. And, and then after that, he, he leaves there. He goes up into the mountain. He calls his disciples to him. He appoints 12 of his disciples as apostles. And now here, he returns home. And the crowd gathers again. So that we're told in, in verse 20 that they couldn't even eat a meal. Now surprisingly, this creates a reaction from Jesus' family. When you're a polarizing figure, people have opinions of you, even when it's in your own family. Now, we see here with their response that there's a level of concern on their part. They're probably thinking that if Jesus keeps doing what he's doing, he's going to die of starvation. But there might also be a level of embarrassment on their part as well, on the part of his family. They go to seize him because they think he's out of his mind. They think he's become delusional. You see, at this point in the narrative, his biological family doesn't believe in him yet. We do know from the Gospels that later on, several of them do actually embrace him. But here, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. They don't believe that he is the Son of God. There's unbelief within his own biological family. They probably think the claims he's making about himself are a result of his own delusion. Unbelief is rampant in his family. John chapter 7 uh, verse 5 affirms this as well when, when referring to, to the brothers of Jesus. We read this in John chapter 7 verse 1 to 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. See, his family didn't believe in him. They thought he had lost his mind. Yet the opinions of his own family won't prevent him from doing the work his heavenly father has given him to do. His family will, will not keep him from doing the Father's will, no matter what they say about him. There's only one voice that is going to control Jesus, and that's the voice of his heavenly Father, the one who sent him into the world. You know, what, what Jesus experiences here is often the experience of many followers of Jesus. Some of you at, Ro at Royal York Baptist Church know this firsthand. God in his mercy saved you and you, you became a follower of Jesus and, and you got baptized and, and you joined a church and your family and your, your close friends thought you lost your mind and they did everything they could within their power to convince you otherwise, even threatening to end their relationship with you. This is often the case of the cost of following Jesus. Jesus alluded to this in Matthew 10, 34 to 37, where he says, 
Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus is saying here that, that with his coming, within families, there will be some who believe and some who do not. And it will create division. Father will turn against son and son against father and, and mother against daughter. And then he goes on to say in verse seven, 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, this is the cost of following Jesus, that sometimes our own family members will turn against us. But here's the thing. Your Savior, Jesus, knows what it's like. He knows exactly what it's like. His own family thought he had lost his mind. You can only imagine in the privacy of their home them trying to convince Jesus that he needed to stop with all this shenanigans. He needed to come to grips with reality. When in reality, they needed to come to grips with reality. You see, what Jesus experienced with his own family and, and, and what many of you have also experienced is also true for the Christian in general especially in a, a post-Christian culture like the one we are in. And, and the question before us as followers of Jesus is, will we be willing to embrace the title insane, delusional, in order to be faithful to Jesus? You see, if you believe in, in miracles, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if you believe in the return of Jesus, if you believe in the sexual ethics of the Bible, if you believe in humanity's inherent sinfulness, you will be seen as delusional, as out of your mind, as irrational in our culture. And the question is, for each of us, will obedience to the will of our Heavenly Father be more important than the, than the opinions of godless people? You see, if Christ was considered, considered insane by his own family, you can bet his disciples will be as well. In fact, we actually have uh, this encounter with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26, when, when he's on trial before King Agrippa and also Festus, the, the procreator in Judea. And he's, he's laying his case before them. He's telling, basically, um, his testimony to them. And, and when Festus specifically hears all that Paul's saying, this is what we read in Acts 26, 24 to 25. And as he was saying these things in, in his defense, that is Paul, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. See, here's the reality. If Christ did what he did and is what he said, then the most sane thing you could do is to give your life to him and follow him. 
If he is God and Lord, if he is the King of Kings and the Savior of the world, then the only logical, rational thing to do is to give your life to him, no matter what the world may think of you. Now, as we see here in this passage, this wasn't the only opinion of Jesus. He wasn't only accused of being insane. In fact, he was accused of being far worse than merely insane, which is what we see next. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. These scribes came from Jerusalem. They weren't from Galilee, but, but word had spread about Jesus even in Jerusalem, even though Jesus hadn't been there yet. These scribes came and, and they began spreading to the people that Jesus is basically an instrument of Satan. They claim that he's possessed by Beelzebul, which many argue that this could be a reference to the Lord of demons, Satan himself. And they also claim that, that by the prince of demons, he casts out other demons. In other words, he's a servant of Satan and his power to cast out demons comes from Satan. They were basically accusing Jesus of being a magician, and under the Old Testament, this was punishable by death. So his family thinks he's crazy, and these religious leaders claim his source of power, claim his source of power comes from the demonic. Now I want you to notice, though, that they don't deny that Jesus has casted out demons. They don't deny that he has the power to cast out demons because it's undeniable. But in their attempt to denounce Jesus, they blasphemously claim that the source of his power comes from the demonic. Now church, it's important to see that if Jesus faces opposition like this, so will his followers. In fact, this is precisely what, what Jesus argued in Matthew 10, 24 to 25, where he says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If, if they're not afraid to call the, the master, Christ himself, as a worker of demons, how much more will they align his followers? We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition, opposition and false accusa accusations. Jesus warned us to identify with him would bring about these results. This is partly what it means to take up our crosses and follow him. But Jesus also tells us in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute, persecute you, and hear this, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
So these religious leaders, they're accusing Jesus of casting out the demonic with demonic powers. And so Jesus, in verse 23, he calls to them and he responds to them by, by speaking in parables. So look at verse 23 to 27. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that, that king, kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and, let, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So he responds to their accusation in two ways, in basically two short parables. First, he shows the absolute irrationality of their accusation. That's what verses 23 to 26 are all about, right? It's like, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And then he goes down to verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's just showing the absolute lunacy of their accusation. What you're saying isn't even a pos possible. How can Satan rise up against himself and be divided? You see, what you see here in this accusation is the irrationality that proceeds from sin. Sin breeds foolish, unreasonable, irrational thinking. These scribes in their sinfulness stand so opposed to Jesus that when he delivers people from the demonic, they conclude he did it by the demonic. Sin makes people irrational. I mean, this is precisely what Paul argues in, in Romans 1, chapter 18, where he's speaking about the wrath of God, and he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, the unrighteousness of men is not a result of them not knowing the truth. It's a result of them suppressing the truth. They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And so when, when, they, when they see Jesus casting out demons, in their unrighteousness, they cannot acknowledge that he is doing that by the power of God and so therefore they suppress the truth by their own unrighteousness by claiming that he's casting out demons by demons. They have become irrational. This is what sin does. So he shows the absolute irrationality of their accusation and secondly he explains to them what he what is actually happening before their very eyes as he says in verse 27 but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house so who's the strong man well the answer is satan and what's his house well the dominion of darkness in this world by which he wreaks havoc on this world. 
And what are his possessions, his goods? Well, it's humans that he's enslaved to do his will. As Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 tells us that before we were saved by Jesus Christ, we're told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's Satan's possessions. See, Satan is strong and, and he has a degree of power. But Jesus is declaring to these scribes that one who is stronger than Satan has appeared. He is superior in every way. And the evidence of this is, is the power by which he casts out the demonic. In other words, Jesus has broken into Satan's house, has bound him, and is delivering sinners from his reign. And every time Jesus casts the demonic out of an individual, we are being reminded of this. But Jesus doesn't merely bind Satan by casting out the demonic and delivering him, uh, his people from demon possession. He binds Satan and plunders his good by triumphing over Satan on the cross where he makes payment for sin to God and delivers a host of captives from Satan's tyranny and condemnation. In other words, in the gospel, Jesus comes to make war upon Satan and he comes to destroy Satan. The days of Satan are numbered. This is precisely what John writes in 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's the reason he's come, to destroy his works. So with the coming of Jesus, the dominion of darkness is, is being pushed back, and the kingdom of light is making its assault against the darkness. Christ will prevail and has prevailed. And the question that's put before all of us is, whose side are you on? Christ's or Satan's? The kingdom of light or, or the dominion of darkness? Now some of you might say, well, I'm not on Jesus' side, but, but I'm also not on Satan's side. And I would say to you that there's no middle option. If you're not on the side of Jesus, you're, you're naturally under the dominion of darkness, whether you realize it or not. And friend, the dominion of darkness is coming to an end just as the night can't prevent the sun from rising. And so I implore you to turn from darkness and to embrace the light of Christ. So Jesus responds to their accusations, but he doesn't end there. He then gives a serious warning to them. They're playing with fire as they accuse him of casting out demons by demons, spreading and claiming this to the people. And Jesus, in verse 28 to 30, gives a terrifying warning. So let me read that for us. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now many of you know that these verses have caused quite a controversy within the church, church and even outside the church. 
What does it mean to be guilty of an eternal sin? This verse has brought fear to many. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? The reality is this passage isn't as controversial as many make it out to be. In verse 28, Jesus declares that all sins will be forgiven and whatever blasphemies they utter. In other other words, any person who repents of their sins and turns to Jesus, no matter what sins they've committed and no matter what blasphemies they've uttered, will be granted forgiveness. What a comforting truth. Friend, every sin that, that you committed can be forgiven, if but you would only ask Jesus for it and embrace him by faith. The most egregious sin can be forgiven. But there is one sin that will not be forgiven. And it is the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. The one who does this will never know forgiveness, Jesus said. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, I think Kent Hughes gives an excellent definition. This is what he says. It's the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is the perversion in the heart which chooses to call light darkness and darkness light. It is continuing rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's it's claiming that which is light is darkness. It's, It's continuing to reject the witness of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And this is why Mark gives further clarification in verse 30 when he says... For they were saying he has an unclean unclean spirit. They were ascribing to the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, demonic powers. Now when Mark says they were saying, he puts it in the imperfect tense. And the idea there is that they were continually saying this about Jesus They were continually ascribing the power of the Holy Spirit to the demonic. This wasn't just one time. This was a a continual thing they were doing. They They were in continual rejection of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is warning them that if you continue in this path of defiance against me and the work of the Spirit, you will cut yourself off from any opportunity to find forgiveness. This means that someone can so harden themselves against the work of the Spirit that there is no point, that there is no point of any return. And I actually believe that this can happen before someone dies. Now, this doesn't mean that if someone curses God, they've somehow committed the unforgivable sin. This doesn't mean that just because someone is opposed to God and his work and and they're pretty defiant, that they've somehow committed the unforgivable sin. That's not what this means. But it does mean that as someone continues through their lifetime to reject the work of the Spirit, to harden their hearts to the things of the Spirit, to believe that the things of the Spirit are evil, They are trending towards this destination of committing the unforgivable unforgivable sin. And Jesus is saying, be warned. Be warned. 
Now, it's also important to see that this sin, it, it requires knowledge to commit such a sin. These scribes were, were knowledgeable in the things of God, yet they still defied his work. See, this passage isn't referring to the, the non-Christian who's never been acquainted with the Christian faith and, and has cursed God in his life. No, no, this is referring to the person who, in a sense, has, has grown up in the Christian faith, has been immersed in the Scriptures, and yet continues to defy and reject the work of the Holy Spirit, claiming to be evil rather than good. So if you're worried that you've committed the unforgivable sin, I can confidently assure you that your worry is evidence that you haven't. See, the person that, that Jesus describes here is the person that has so hardened his heart against God and his work, he doesn't even care if his soul is in danger. He goes to the grave shaking his fist at God. And friend, if, if that remotely describes you, I plead with you this morning to turn and repent and turn to Christ. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins before it's too late. Get down on your knees and cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then live for him. Now, one last word for us as Christians. Only God can truly know, truly know who has committed the unforgivable sin. And therefore, every person God has placed in our lives, we must witness to them and hope that God might save them, no matter the defiance they show against Jesus and his word. For it would be easy to conclude that a man like Saul would have been beyond God's grace. But God chose to save him and raise him up to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so let God be God and we his followers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he has plundered the strong man's house. He has redeemed us by his own blood. He has conquered Satan through his death and resurrection. And we are no longer under the tyranny and the condemnation of Satan. We thank you for this glorious hope. And Lord, we pray that as, as your followers, that we would be willing to suffer alongside Jesus, to be willing to embrace false accusation for the sake of your name. And Lord, I also pray that there's anyone who is hardening their hearts towards Christ, who is even watching this sermon and hardening their hearts. I pray, God, that you would have mercy and soften their heart. By your spirit, draw them to yourself. And may they turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.